0: Hello, I'm Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawkes. You're about to hear episode seven of Trailblazers with a real legend in the game, Mr.
1: Daniel Miller, the boss of Mute Records. Not only the boss, but the, the guy who started the whole thing, the whole Mute uh, journey, Depeche Mode and Erasure and then all sorts of stories that come out. Absolutely fascinating stuff, I Hope that, that you enjoy it. We certainly enjoyed chatting to Daniel, didn't we? It was, it was, yeah, it was a great yeah. one. And, uh, and what you get here is you get a taster of the music that was significant uh, for Daniel on his journey. If you want to listen to the tracks in full, Deezer.com is where you go to, and there you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists from uh, Eddie and myself and our guests. Yeah, talk about someone who was ahead of the curve. You know, a lot of
0: the Mm -hmm. things that we really love about dance music uh, were pretty much started by this man. So this is a real interesting one. Let's begin.
2: Deezer Originals. Trailblazers. Daniel Miller.
0: Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers. My name's Eddie Temple-Morris, and by my side, as ever, XL and Positiva Records founder Nick Hawkes. Together, each time we light a warm and friendly fire and invite another dance music legend like Nick to chat to us by the fireside, to talk about the cultural fires they started, and to play some of the tunes that soundtrack their fascinating lives. This week's firestarter is a sonic test pilot, avant-garde electronic musician, analogue synth guru, mute records and publishing company boss extraordinaire New music champion and to millions of people, the man that gave the world Depeche Mode, Daniel Miller. Welcome to Trailblazers. What a, what a it's great to see to have your name on this uh, on this list. So um, as I as I put a log on the fire, I'm going to hand you over to Nick as I always do.
1: So so where let's scroll back now So mm-hmm. where did the the interest start in in music for you? What what was the
3: yeah? Well, it, according to I mean, it it goes beyond before my memory actually. Ah. According to my parents at the time, who. Um, right. I was obsessed with Three Blind Mice, the, the nursery rhyme. <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: And apparently, yeah. I, I just stood over the record player, or radiogram, or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I just. Well, I must have been two or something. I don't okay. know. just. I was just obsessed, just wanted to hear that track all the time.
1: Non stop.
3: Non stop. More mice. Apparently constant saying, rewinds. Yeah, constantly rewinds. Just more mice, apparently, I used to say
1: More mice. More mice. So, so that obsession. Yeah,
3: happened before. I can. I don't. I don't remember it. But right. I was. So that. Oh, that's fun.
1: Wow.
0: Well, yeah, that, that, that is quite uh, because that is an obsession. If you look at it with simplicity, isn't it? Yeah, with I mean, yeah. al- innocence. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. but that that's almost like uh, it, it. Almost provides a model for the for yeah. the electronic music that,
1: that you have got into <laughs> yeah. later. Yeah.
0: And I didn't
3: uh, put that on the list, unfortunately.
1: No, no, okay, well, we'll... uh, (laughs) We we can can visualise that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, yeah, and then what what was the first music that you became aware of, you know, when you were like, right, Mm -hmm. I know there's something going on here, it excites me.
3: I think it was Skiffle. Right. Early, I mean, I was probably about, I don't know, I was probably about six, seven or seven or eight or something like that when Skiffle started.
1: Is this sort of... Mid sixties. Oh no, mid-60s? way
3: no way before. Oh, uh, this is fifties. We're
1: in the fifties here.
3: Yeah, we're in the fifties. Uh,
1: okay,
3: uh, sort of late-ish fifties, I guess. Okay, right. Okay. And somehow I became aware of Skiffle. I don't really know how. Okay. Because I mean, there wasn't you know radio like no, there is there's now. No,
1: there was no Radio One in the fifties. No, there was like there was
3: a light program. Okay. And um, <laughs> but there was a show on. I think it was on at eight o'clock in the evening, which was a Skiffle show. Right. <laughs> which is kind of a fake kind of American gig yeah uh, I don't know I can't remember but I used to but I was so obsessed I was allowed to stay up to listen to that right and um, and uh, then I went from that to then of course I became a bit more aware of rock and roll mm, mm. and then you know Chuck Berry people like that I really loved yeah. Bo Diddley yeah, yeah,
1: yeah and then the
3: whole you know you know the English you know Beatles Stones yes. when I got into my sort of when I was about 11 or something like that okay and I was, you know, gone. You were into it. it. That was it. I've, it was over. My life was over at that point.
1: Is, is there a bit of music that that you'd like to like well, us to play from from that era? That well, I
3: think I think well, I think there was uh, yeah. There's Johnny Duncan and the Bluegrass Boys, which is a skiffle, which was a kind of a. He's actually American, but lived. He was. I think he was in the forces and ended up living in Hartlepool or something like that. <laughs> um, oh wow! And, <laughs> and he was he was great, and he did some great, great, really kind of energetic, exciting sounding great sounding stuff that great. I liked when I was about five seven or eight
2: Trailblazers Daniel Miller my strength.
0: A cool slowdown at the end. Yeah, though. very good. So, um, um, knowing <laughs> nothing of <laughs> knowing nothing at all about skiffle music, are they? Yeah. Are they the skiffle mainstream, or were you all? Because ever since the late seventies, oh. your life is is about as far away from the mainstream as anyone can
3: well,
1: guess. Is, is that more underground when, when, skiffle? Yeah, when did? Well, that's a
3: really good question. I, it felt pretty <laughs> underground to me. I have no idea. But skiffle, but well, you know, skiffle was like actually a precursor to punk rock in a way because it was lots of kids. Who weren't musicians mm. using making music? I mean, he was more experienced, but the, but you know, it was the, it was the washboard and the yeah, tea chest bass basic. and all that. Yeah, so it was so it was like kids making this kind of sort of you know weirdly distorted version of American music. The so yeah. skiffle was British; it wasn't. It was a very very much a British phenomenon, not us. Yes. You know, people, like, I mean, Lonnie Donegan was a big yes. skiffle star. Yeah, right, right, right. But you know, I remember there was a program on TV called "Thank Your Lucky Stars." Mm. And they used to have all these kids doing their skiffle things. I mean, you know, and it was yeah, it was kind of like punk. Lots of
1: excitement, yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. No, no, no need for technical expertise; just having fun and right. making a, a noise. You it's
0: know, DIY. The DIY it thing was, is the it key. Was to was it, very it? DIY.
3: Yes, it was very DIY. Yeah, and that was nice. And then, you know, then of course, around sixty-one, sixty-two, then the whole British beat pop thing got mm. exploded with the Beatles and the Stones and all those great bands, Kinks. I I could go on and, small and faces
0: were you a Beatles man or a Stones man well that's really that's I was a bit uh,
3: the very initially I was a Beatles man well the, the Stones started the Beatles started just before the Stones yeah or, and I remember going to around to a friend of mine's uh, house and his mum you know she, I had sort of long hair you know like so you know and um, yeah. she was very anti-long hair and all that kind of and I remember when She Loves You came out by the Beatles she said, um, "Oh, I quite like that." And at that moment, I immediately went on to the Stones, <laughs>
0: <laughs> "The Kiss of yeah.
3: Death." Um, <laughs> but I came back to the Beatles and Stones. But it was there was so much. I mean, you know, it's incredible energy at that time for somebody. You know, I was eleven or twelve or something, and it was just mm. like all this stuff that was sounding unbelievable. Mm. You know, and it still was no Radio One. It was no. it was still the Light Programme. It was Saturday Club. Mm. Brian Matthew on Saturday Club.
1: Were was, you buying seven-inch singles? I started. Then I started
3: point? to buy seven-inch singles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah where
1: where were you growing up?
3: Northwest London, Golders Green, that okay. sort of area. Okay, okay. Um, There's loads of record shops around there. Yeah, but you know, you'd hang around and just listen. You know, because you could listen to records in those days. You know, mm. and mm. Uh, but I started to buy. Yeah, I started to buy records. Yeah.
1: Mm, okay, mm. and uh, so then, so you, you, yeah, you were m- more of a Stones person.
3: Did you say? Well, that? it moved on, and then of yeah. course, and then when the pretty things started, the Stones seemed very, you know, it, it, you know, mm. but, you know, you move on really quickly at that age. But I know, but obviously, I mean, I think the Stones for era, you know, the Brian Jones era, basically, was my is my favourite Stones era. Right, it and went I a bit rock and ro- rock after that. I never thought them was a rock band; they were kind of an R and B band.
1: So so around this point where mm. you're you're distilling your taste do, do you I mean what, there there isn't a music industry though at, at at this point though anything like what it's been over the last sort of 20 30 years is there it was a uh, like if you'd said presumably mm. to your parents I yeah. want to be I want to run a record... Who would say anything like that? Yeah, I
3: mean, I, had no, I didn't, have, didn't have... I wanted to be in a band. You wanted to be in a band? Yeah, and I was in a band. Right. I mean, I started... Well, everybody was in a band.
1: <laughs> right. You know. Now tell and, us about your band.
3: Well, there's a school based, based at school.
1: Yeah.
3: And, like, most... You know, all the really great musicians gravitated together. Yeah, gravitated mm. together, is that right? And all the worst musicians gravitated together. And I was in that lowest. That <laughs> was in that very <laughs> really? bottom bottom rung.
0: Okay, and uh, describe yourself <laughs> as a terrible guitar player.
3: Oh, <laughs> I mean awful, but really had a lot of fun. And there's some actually a couple of really great musicians came were in my class at school.
1: Ah, tell us.
3: Paul Kossoff from Free. Oh wow! Oh, yeah, wow. he was in my class. School. He tried to teach me to play guitar. We were quite good friends. And he tried to teach me, but he failed. Even he failed to teach me, so I knew that that wasn't okay. And Nick Potter, who was in uh, Van de Graaff Generator and various other, oh, right? Yeah, they okay. were both in my class, and they were great. Even, you know, at the age of 12, they were clearly super talented. Mm. I mean, Paul was a great classical guitarist, yes, he did kind of do recitals at school and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And Nick was really, you know, a great bass player, so. Mm. And you know, but
0: I, I had no real pretensions to being. I just wanted to play. I was yes. going to say it's, it's <laughs> interesting that you there's there's almost self-anr-ing going on back there. You know, yeah. there's, there's no delusion. Like, and oh, yeah, no, I was just very... Think that they're great, but they're shit. Yeah. And you you knew you were rubbish. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a great self-awareness there, which is something to. Yeah. This is very laudable.
3: Yeah, and we, you know, I practiced like hell, and I never got any better. You know, so I, I, I've reached a very <laughs> low. Ceiling and I enjoyed. I enjoyed it, you know. When I, we we used to play. We even did a few gigs, yeah. kind of at school and stuff like that. And were
0: you were you, co- were you covering Rolling Stone songs and stuff like that, or, or some of the yeah. songs that the Rolling <laughs> Stones were covering? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Actually, yeah, we were
3: covering the sto- songs the Rolling Stones were covering. I mean, we did Chuck Berry songs yeah, and yeah. some blues. You know, the, you know the, as it went on, more bluesy stuff. Um, you know, but. Mm.
1: Well, let's let's hear a bit of music from that era now, where mm. you you're you you're playing in a band and you're starting to think I'd like to be a musician. Yeah. What what, what would you like to give us a, a blast of from uh, well, that it, zone?
3: It could have been a number of things, but yeah. I thought I I've been listening to early Stones a lot recently, just because getting back into it. And I, I thought I'd play "I Want to Be Your Man," which was their second single. But I remember when it came out, it was scandalised. Like so much, everything about the Rolling Stones was scandalised in those days. They couldn't move without causing a scandal. But the scandal about this song, which I really liked, which was actually written by Lennon and McCartney, mm. was there are only seventeen words in the different words in the song, and that was a scandal because it was so um,
0: illiterate. You know. <laughs> 17 <laughs> words and, and, and one minute, 44 seconds long. There you go.
2: Trailblazers, Daniel Miller. I wanna be your lover, baby.
0: Great bit of history from 1964. That's the Rolling Stones doing a Beatles song, um, soundtrack in the life of Daniel Miller. Um, So Daniel, at at this point, you you had the self awareness to know that you were a terrible guitar player and you weren't going to get anywhere, and it was other people that were going to have success in that. Um, At what point did you? um then kind of get involved because it I guess the key for you would be discovering the the first synthesizer one of the first synthesizers when when did that moment happen when because it must have been an epiphany for you
3: yeah it, well it, yeah for sure it was i mean i think if you look back through that period 1962 to 1966 1967 how music progressed through that period how it, you know it grew and Expanded through that period is unbelievable if you think of just four years four or five years if you think of any other four or five year period in the history of pop music it doesn't come close to that and I was on that wave you know I was following it I was on that wave but then all of a sudden I got bored around 67, 68 when it got... I don't know, it seemed to get very in, more inward-looking,
0: more self-indulgent. Well, bit more. Everybody started taking loads of drugs that time.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the drugs were there all the time, but they were, I think that people had... Of course, drugs had a very positive... Well, I wouldn't say they had a positive... But drugs had an effect on music, all, as always, hand-in-hand hand with music. And I think at a certain point, I think that was going kind of getting darker... Not darker, it, bit dark. I don't, I've always liked dark, but inward-looking and kind of self-indulgent... And all that kind of energy, like we just heard on the Rolling Stones, which was unbelievable, energy seemed to be dissipated into more muso-y kind of music, kind of shit, yeah. know, which, <laughs> which I, it didn't appeal to me. It never has really. And so I was looking for other stuff, you know. And I'd be listening to radio, trying try to tune into sort of weird foreign stations playing avant-garde mm. music. And I, yeah, you know, I could kind of got, you know, started to hear things that I liked. I had no idea what
0: they were, and then. I'm guessing it was Germany. That something maybe coming out of Germany. Could been Germany, you on?
3: France. There was French, I, you know. But then you couldn't really tell if it was the interference on the radio. <laughs> or, that was it. <laughs> or that was in the record. Or That was in the record. <laughs> didn't match, it didn't matter because it sounded great.
1: Did you, did you find yourself going into record stores and going, oh, "I want this record," and it sort of like fades in, it goes really quiet, and then it comes back up to, <laughs> yeah. and then it fades <laughs> yeah, out. out again. Yeah. Yeah. It.
3: <laughs> but I suppose um, I. I, some, by almost by accident, I sort of discovered what was going on in Germany in the sort of late sixties musically. Um, I remember going; I was at uh, I was at, just started at college in Guildford, and there was a Woolworths there that had the most incredible bargain bin. Somebody made some t- huge mistakes; a buyer had made some huge mistakes, or taken too many drugs, or whatever.
2: Yeah,
3: <laughs> and, the, and I found this record by a group called Armand Dool Mm. Uh, and I thought, and it was German, and I I didn't know who it was or what it was, but the cover was amazing. It's called, the album's called Phallus Day, mm. I'm on dual Two, to be clear. Mm. it was fifty p or whatever yeah. at the time.
1: Yeah,
3: it had lots of umlauts on it, mm. and uh, r- great sounding style. so I bought it, and I and I took it home, and, I th- and it it was incredible. I found it really amazing, mm. partly because the it was just completely unstructured. Right, it was. It felt like it was played by people who didn't really know how to play, yep. which is actually wrong. That, that's incorrect, but it kind of sounded like that. Yeah, kind of, and it had lots of weird noises on it. Mm. And very quickly, and John Peel, of course, was you know a huge influence, and he yes. s- he started playing
1: similar stuff.
3: Yeah, he yeah. played Can. Yeah, and I heard my first Can record, mm-hmm. and that, that again, that was you know. If you think of it's you know you listen to so many people love can and say cite it as an influence, but at that moment in time to hear can in the context of everything else was going on, Mm. there was so much space. It was kind of repetitive, but not you know repetitive and all that kind of stuff. And it was just like exactly what I wanted to hear. You know, it got rid of all the clutter. Had other kind of the sort of simplicity, but you know it's it's quite actually complicated, but felt quite simplicity of something like the Rolling Stones, but sounding completely different.
1: And you were at college at this point, were you? I just started
3: at college, doing
1: yeah. Doing art, stuff? Film, at... I was doing film, film,
3: film and TV, yeah. And, and
1: were your contemporaries into some of the same music as you, or were you just a little bit out on a limb, discovering Can and your...
3: Well, I was a little bit of an evangelist for it all, so I right. got some people into it, you Good. know. all
1: right, OK. <laughs> so you got to listen to
3: this, gotta listen, to it, put the headphones on, turn it up, you know. Excellent, excellent. Um, but the first synthesizer that I actually got my hands on was at college. Um there was a guy called Ron Geeson, who was a sound artist and poet who'd worked with people like Pink Floyd, and we had sort of um we had, you know visiting lecturers who came in to give a one-off one-off yeah, lectures. So, yeah. yeah, one-off talks. And he came in to give a talk. And he brought his a synthesizer with him. He brought a VCS3, or actually, no, an AKS uh synthy uh for uh, made by um EMS the one in the suitcase with a mm. which is a bit like the one that Brian Eno used but it's in a suitcase. Right. And he would only just got it so he didn't really know how to use it. So he so well, he just so he just plugged it in and said have a have a go, you know. Is this is one with
0: a giant patch bay on it and It's the- got the pin pin matrix yeah. on it. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. And um you know made famous by people like you know and uh mm-hmm. hawkwind especially yeah um we'll get on to hawkwind um <laughs> yes yeah let's and um <laughs> and yeah so that's my first and i and it was and i was yeah that combined with hearing some of the electronic music or music that used electronics at the time kind of had me hooked really
1: right and did you start making some of your own music at that point then we well, college,
3: you? well, we used. I did a lot of stuff with tape manipulation. Oh. There were no synth- the
0: synthesizer wasn't at college.
1: No, he, he just brought he, it with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, So that was yeah, just your yeah. first taste, yeah. and
0: he didn't really know how to use it. And he and didn't I know how to use it. You probably made better sounds out of it than he did. I don't know. <laughs> we not really. We
3: you know we had five minutes each on it or something yeah. like that. But yeah, but there, there was a small sound studio there which had three stereo tape recorders, quarter inch tape recorders. So he did a lot of stuff with tape loops and you know cutting up tapes and using using them as delays and playing melodicas and stuff like that into it and distorting and those kind of things for more for the kind of soundtracks for the films that we were working on but yeah. um, I just got into it very very much film was always my second music was always my first passion but I didn't couldn't work out how I was going to engage with it on a you know professional level in a, right. or, or anything other than just being in, a, in, a, in an enjoyable but not very good band you know right and uh, so this was a new way of engaging with it. Synthesizers were incredibly expensive at that time for somebody like me. Sure, so
0: sure. For everyone, yeah, they were so, every, yeah. so prohibitively expensive when they came out. It yeah, was, uh, yeah, they it was were so exclusive. That yeah, whole they were world. very, yeah, very kind of you could say elitist in a way. Yeah, but. absolutely. So, so how mm. did you? I guess you had to save up.
3: <laughs> well, I didn't get. I mean, that was nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy. I didn't get a synthesizer till seventy seven. Yeah. So there was, you know, there was quite a long gap between that. But I was you know I worked in film for a while a little bit as an editor I started my first DJ kind of career not Mm. career sorry for DJing in in Switzerland and in uh, in a club yeah. what was the context of that the context was it's a ski it was a context was I'd been working after I left college I worked for a couple of years in a cutting room in a you know doing I just had enough of being in London and being cooped up Yeah, and I just wanted to get to I wanted to go to the mountains I love the mountains I want to go to the mountains and uh get some air and you Mm. know and i thought well if i'm i knew a place i wanted to go where where i'd been to before on holiday and i thought if i want to if i go i'd like to go to that village right and i'd like to dj at that club because it's a great well it's it's a good place to meet people and um (laughs) uh yeah and it meant that i could ski during the day and work at night so i just went there i I, basically i went on on the road I went on the road I left I left work and decided just to go on the road and on, while I was on the road I went there
0: and um, applied for a job I'd never dj before in my life So did you have to uh, temper your very avant-garde taste to sort oh, of yeah. fit in with the Après Ski Brigade in in or <laughs> wherever you were
3: it was, it was actually it was called Zermatt a place called Zermatt, Zermatt, Zermatt which yeah. is by the, by the Matterhorn and so I did a test in the summer and they and, and there's nobody there because there's nobody there in the summer but I just played for an hour or something They I said well we're not sure if the other DJ's coming back or not, so um you can get you ha- we'll give you a job either as a code check or the DJ. So the other DJ didn't come back, so I got the job as a DJ. So Excellent. that was my first professional musical engagement. So I did that for two seasons, six months at a time.
1: Great, yeah.
3: And it was really playing the hits of the day. Right. You know, it was a pop, yeah. It was like so I, jukebox. It, yeah. It was uh, you know, it was a mixture of ABBA, deep purple, status quo, uh you know uh, the Commodores. <laughs> right. Um, it was pre disco.
1: <laughs> right. Right.
3: <laughs> yeah, it was all over the place. But it was. Sure. But it was what they it wanted. Was it was fun. It was fun, and it's what people wanted. And it, you know, the second season got a bit more funk orientated. A bit and disco was just sort of. done Don yeah. at first Donna Summer. thing. I, I
1: did a couple of uh, summer seasons myself. Actually. Oh really? I did. I was in um, Mallorca. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I used to DJ like from ten at night till six in the morning. Didn't get a day off. So mm. just like that, some that one summer, I just you know, and you play the big records three yeah. times in a night, yeah. you know. Oh.
0: I'm guessing because that when you you've first heard that Donna Summer record and you heard Giorgio Moroder's production, I mm. mean, obviously knowing um, TVOD, that's almost yeah. a, it's almost a, a, a homage to, to Moroder. That, that yeah, that's well, right.
3: by, by that time I was really you know by the time I started DJing, I was already really into craft work, of course, mm. and and course. those. And you know Klaus Schulze and Noi and the real really into the German stuff, and yeah, George, yeah. When I heard uh, I feel love, but I heard um, Love to Love You Baby was came out before. That was a yep. big one when actually when I was de- that when I was DJing that that was the big the big tune the big tune yeah. Um, and then yeah, that the, the uh, I feel love came out later. Yeah, of course I loved it, and I really related it to Kraftwerk and you know I could hear the all the influences, but I thought it was fantastic, you know. And yeah, of course it was an influence.
0: Yeah, and. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, So I guess then the, the, the next um, pin in the map really of your life would be where, where you actually made your first, you, you took all of these influences yeah. and you took the money that you got from editing and from DJing and whatever yeah. else that you were doing mm. and you invested that in what probably was a, well, a major investment for that time um, your, and your first synthesizer and, and, and mm. something to record with, I presume it's like a, mm. a four track recorder or something exactly yeah I, I mean it was that
3: was around 76 when I decided that I wanted to do it because the whole the part I was you know really energ- I was kind of got a bit jaded by music mm. but then punk happened and it, I got really energised by it mm. by, by the by some of the music but also just the whole energy of the movement and all the all the things that it threw out it was actually meant so many different it, you could think about punk for me is of course you think about punk you think about the Sex Pistols safety pins blah 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 yep but I think for a lot of people, it just gave them the, the tools or the energy to, to, to explore their own imaginations, you know, mm-hmm. and in a, or to express their imagination they already had. It was like an open book. You could do whatever you wanted. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just felt that – I actually felt that a synthesizer could be a really great punk instrument. And I thought, okay, this, I just felt it was my time. If I was going to try to do anything, it was going to be then. So I bought a Korg seven hundred second hand Korg 700S, seven hundred S, which is a very, really good but very basic synth, because by that time Japanese synths had started to come out and they were a lot less expensive than the American ones,
2: mm.
3: and a TAC four track tape recorder,
1: mm-hmm.
3: plugged it in and started messing around at home, you know, and um, I for the, for the first time ever, I really actually thought I enjoyed what I was doing. I, I, well, I always enjoyed the muse playing, but I actually thought it was quite—it was all right, you know—as yes. opposed to the guitar, which I just enjoyed and didn't knew it wasn't all right. Yeah. yeah. With the synth, I thought, actually, <laughs> this <laughs> is actually this is all right, actually. So yeah, I, yeah. I just did tons of stuff at home every night. Oh, by that time, I was working again as, in the films. Every night, I was just up all night, just mucking about and doing stuff, you know. And I thought I got to a point, and then the whole DIY single thing started, and I thought, what the fuck? I'll just do, I'll put a I'll put a record out. Just put a record out and see what happens. Nobody'll like it. I don't care. Um, but I would need to do it. I really had the, you know, the passion to do it. Mm. And um, I did so it.
1: you picked your, your the best track that you that well I, I, had, I or what you thought was the most.
3: I'd, yeah, i had been working on a couple of songs and, um, and so I just picked those two. I developed, you know, but I, I rented a bit of a, equipment mm. which I could only afford for one day. So I knew that I had to do the whole thing in one day, record yep. and mix. Yeah, and I booked. Mastering, yes. So I was really—I gave myself a deadline, which like, was really important.
1: Very important, yeah, for sure. Otherwise, um, yeah, without any kind of deadline, could you can st- still be finishing I- it off now. <laughs> yeah, <couldn't you>? exactly.
3: <laughs> and I just did those two, the two tracks, "Warm Leatherette" and "TVOD," and which I thought nobody would like because it was there wasn't much electronic uh, that kind of pa- whatever wave of electronic music hadn't started yet, really. Yeah. And I think there was lots of other people at exactly the same time doing exactly the same, like people like the Human League and OMD and Cabaret Voltaire. There was suicide in America. There was suicide in America, that's right, which um, which was definitely an influence.
0: Um, yeah, I always thought you, 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 you were, very, at that stage, a very English and slightly camp suicide. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, I think, I mean, suicide...
3: I think what the thing about suicide that I... I loved, but also kind of. I love their American, their their Americanness. Yeah. The fact that they were using that they were an American band, very American sounding, but not American sounding at all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what of, you mean. The kind of very rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Alan Vega, you know, really rock and roll, but the sound was nothing to do with that. Yeah, they're
0: as American as the Ramones, but yeah, with, with no guitars at all. <coughs> yeah, so, which I
3: really liked, but also I wanted to do something that was not American. And, um, so it's all those things kind of fed into it, you know, but, but when I'm, t- you know, the, the kind of when I'm t- the post-punk electronic thing hadn't quite started. It was all, everybody was doing, everybody had the same influences. When you, when I met all these people afterwards, everybody had the same influences, had the same trajectory. Mm. And a lot of records came out in about four month period in 1978. Mm
0: out of that kind of movement you know so yeah well Gary Newman is someone that we talked to who was yeah. know really getting active in that period yeah. and, and was was so inspired uh, I, no. I must mention it's it, as we record this it's the day after David Bowie two days after David Bowie died yeah and of course you know what a, a massive influence on, on there would be no Gary Newman without, oh, without David Bowie yeah. you know, what some what, what, um, what kind of influence did Bowie have in your life well at that point
3: at that point I have to admit and it sounds horrible in the context of the time of of today the last couple of days but he had no influence whatsoever I actually uh, because he'd taken a lot of the influences that I liked and made them into his own like a lot of the especially around the low and heroes time Mm. Um, and I was kind of and I was a bit of I was a very pure I was very purist and I thought well, he's kind of ripped him off a bit or something like that. Mm. But it wasn't, rip- you know. But the re- you know. But now, you, when you get to understand Bowie, he just like took influences from everywhere and, and synthesized them into his own thing. I just thought that he, that he was very successful at that time, and these guys were, were not. And he'd kind of taken a lot of their ideas and put them into his music. Having, to, but you know, to be fair, credit always credited them
1: mm.
3: and mm. always acknowledged it. You know, he, he didn't pretend that he hadn't. But Bowie somehow. I was slightly... In the first wave of both... I mean, I liked... I remember, you know, Space Oddity when I was a kind yeah. of a teenager. I loved that track. By the time the whole Ziggy Stardust came on, I thought it was a bit too commercial.
0: Yeah.
3: I was very into sort of... Under, more the, of, sort of the... Of course. The German stuff. I you know, like the, you know, weird electronic noises. And, and I liked some glam rock. You know, there's some great glam rock things, I think. Mm. It's probably not allowed to say it, but I thought <laughs> Gary Glitter was... And Mike Leander, were, that was absolutely... That was very... German, I thought when I first heard Gary Glitter. Yeah,
0: very minimal, yep. very kind
1: of. It was. it was at the
0: time. It was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah brilliant. Yeah. You know, let's rewind back to um, to, to Warm Leatherette and, yeah. and listen to it before I ask you how on earth um, Grace Jones came to cover that record. Okay.
2: Trailblazers, Daniel Miller, Warm Leatherette,
3: Warm Leatherette,
2: Warm. Leatherette, warm, leatherette,
3: see the breaking glass in the underpass, see the breaking glass in the underpass.
1: Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists.
2: Deezer Originals. Trailblazers.
0: So the normal was what you were called. Then you you um, you made a decision to, yeah. to, to have a sort of you know a name. Yeah, a non divinal. A non di, divinal. <laughs> so um, I know, So before I ask you the, the, uh, a, a, a bit more about the um well, there's an interesting thing about your your uh, relationship with rough trade and that story about you going into to rough trade, but. Yeah. But what I really want to know is how on earth did Grace Jones come to cover that? Because that is just that's such an obscure track. Was that was it Trevor Horn's influence there? Or? Chris Blackwell. It was Chris Blackwell. Yeah, he
3: was producing the album that she was working on, uh, which became Warm Le- Leatherette, the album Warm Leatherette. Yeah. And it was a kind of, I mean, what happened with the single was that I thought nobody would like it. I printed 500 copies, or I was going to plan to print 500 copies. I thought nobody would like it. But actually, people did like it, in a, and it, so it became a kind of underground hit, hit, in a way, alternative hit, whatever you want to call it. So it wasn't super obscure. So somebody like Chris Blackwell, who would always have his ear to the ground, or his crew around him,
0: would have maybe played it to him. And we should probably mention Jeff Travis at this point, because I know that you, yeah, you absolutely. But brazenly or naively walked into to Rough Trade going, uh, you know... Well, naively, actually. I, I, I didn't understand how... the I didn't know much about how it worked.
3: So I thought I'd press press a few records, go around to a few of these shops. Like Small Wonder was a really really great shop, and Rough Trade and a few people, and see if they'd buy ten. That was my thing. I said, oh, "Do you want to buy a box?" You know, that was my. I didn't really know how it worked, you know. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, uh, Jeff and Richard Scott, who was they were p- partners in Rough Trade at the time. They they said, "Okay, let's have a listen to it." And they they went out. I went to the little back. This is when it was a two hundred and two Kensington Park Road. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a little back office, little back warehouse, and they said, will oh, come out. We'll come out to the shop and play it." I said, "Oh God, and it's all public." <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah, that's a gig. That, that's a gig. <laughs> <you know. laughs> and they're always like, "And rough trade at the time, and still is to, to a certain extent." It was very much a lot of very cool, cool people hanging around, mm. being cool, mm. friendly, but friendly, but you know. And there's all these people, and I remember Jeff putting it on, putting the record on it in the shop. And I was like, oh my, I was like, like going, must have gone completely red. I was totally embarrassed, you know and i didn't think they liked it because they were just talking to each other and you know and they said oh we really like that we'd like to distribute it Uh he said how many copies were you thinking of doing and i said 500 so oh, you should do two thousand at least and i said well, what does what, what do you mean distribute it what does that mean and he explained it to me in about two minutes and so i said okay why not so they were the distributor for the for it and uh People, people liked it you know it got really good reviews which I was shocked at so it was probably on the radar of somebody like Chris Blackwell or his, his A&R team mm. yeah. and he must have thought oh that sounds pretty weird let's get, give it to Grace to sing or something I don't know I wasn't in part of the conversation at all yeah, of course yeah, I yeah, just yeah. got a phone call from somebody at Island Music the publishing company saying oh we'd like to publish your song Warm Leatherette. I said oh yeah why is that so I can't tell you I said come on well what you know, why, you know I didn't understand what, what it meant so well, one of our artists wants, is going to do a cover version of it. So we want to publish it. And I said, "Okay, who?" And they said, "We can't tell you." So oh, come on, guys. You know, well, I can't. I'm not going to give it to you that. And I was going through my who's on Ireland. You know, at the time, Bob Marley was still alive. And <laughs> mm-hmm. you're
1: thinking, surely not? Sure. Going <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah. through the list. <laughs> yeah, surely not. all yeah, yeah, those people. <laughs> yeah, no, was,
3: and then it says, "Okay, it's Grace Jones." I Said, "Okay." I, I mean, I kind of knew about Grace Jones a bit. I wasn't really. Yeah. I said, "Fine." You know, if she wants to do a cover version, great. And um, that was it, really. I wasn't involved in it, in, in the process yeah. of it at all. It was just, she just went, and she did some great other cover versions on that. Mm. I mean, I, you know, I, I found it quite amusing, her version, but at the time. Mm. But it was great for me, and, uh, you know.
1: So you were, you were up, you were rolling, but had you not. You weren't really a record label at this point, right? You're, no, well, you're, when you're I, an artist. But yeah, you their I, own record.
3: When I put the single out, I had no intention of becoming a record company. I just wanted to put my own single out. I was like a DIY artist putting out their own single, like everybody puts up their own music on the internet now. Yeah.
0: putting out my own single. So was that Mute 01? Yeah, 001. 001,
3: yeah. That was Mute yeah. zero zero 001, which implies there'll be a zero zero 002. So, But of I, never, I never thought that at the time, I just thought. Um, and I just I, and the record was doing quite well, and I was yeah. getting it pressed, and I was doing help, working a little bit at Rough Trade at that point, helping out, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, because I'd kind of left my job as an editor and I I was making enough money from the records to, to stay afloat I I still didn't really want to make a to, to start a label well, I didn't think about it too much and then somebody introduced me actually Edwin Pouncey who was the uh, cartoonist for sounds right who went under the name of Savage Pencil mm-hmm. oh yeah and Edwin still writes so for The Wire anyway he introduced me to somebody called Fad Gadget mm. oh Frank Tovey mm. yeah. Frank mm. Tovey mm. and and I it was the first, I'd heard people had sent, started to send me demos because I had an, you know, my address, but there wasn't anything that I really excited about. That was the first thing I thought I could really relate to, the, the lyrics, mm. the, the sound, the kind of humour and the darkness
0: and all those kind of combinations. So you put your address on the release, is that why you got so many demos? Yeah. Like and, your home
3: address?
1: And,
0: yeah, I didn't know what to do. I mean,
1: yeah. <laughs> I just looked at yeah, all, I just brilliant. looked at
3: other
0: people's records. I thought yeah, they just put their but there is I was just like, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that <laughs> that very that adorable logo of a man or a robot walking yeah. as seen from above was that on there as well? Oh, yeah. So, and, so how did that? Did you draw that, or did, did, you, well, did just, sounds? Uh, did the Savage Pencil make that, or? Oh no! This, no, it was a. I mean, Letroset was very
3: popular in those days. Do you know what set yeah, is? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, it was a kind of...
1: You might, you might want to explain that to... Some of our younger listeners. <laughs>
3: <laughs> some of the t- our teenage listeners. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Letroset was a way, long before you used kind of computers to do printing and stuff, it was a way of... it was It was a... Um, it was. It was a. It was a. It was a. Like a template.
1: Template. Yeah, yeah it was yeah, a yeah. plastic
3: printed. It was yeah. Basically, if you wanted to do lots of, if you wanted to do kind of smart looking lettering, you you could buy a letter set and they had lots of different typefaces, lots of different fonts, lots of different sizes, shapes, blah blah blah. Yep. And you would scratch it onto. It was like like a transfer. You yep. you you'd, you'd scratch them, it onto and the that's paper. That's how you built yeah. And you, yeah, so, but they also did they had, They not only did they do. Uh, fonts, typefaces, they also did some kind of images as well Mm. and one of the things they specialised in was architectural images so that people could use if they were doing a plan and that's where the little man comes from. It's actually an oh, architectural image. an ah. architectural man walking so, through a door. Yeah, so, so when somebody, with an architect was putting a, a, you know, doing a plan for something, they could put a little man in there as a
0: context for size. And, of course, uh, because it's all got to be seen from, from a helicopter. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, so,
3: so it's, a, it's an it's set, hopefully copyright-free <laughs> <laughs> logo, which... Uh, yeah, so that's, the, that's that. That's yeah. that. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, so, so, yeah, so what happens next?
3: So, I, yeah, I met Frank. We got on really well. I said, well, come, let's make a single, you know. And so that's really when Mute started as a label. And, that and right? was that Back to Nature? Back to Nature, yeah. That was Back to Nature. God, and I was dancing to clubs, going just yeah. mental to that record. Yeah. It's not on my list, which is a bit silly, but No still. worries. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so we, you know, and we went into, into a studio. That's the first time I ever went into a studio to record it, a small stu- eight-track studio in Crystal yeah. Palace.
1: Yeah.
3: And I sort of... Work, worked on it with him, you know. I suppose I kind of f- produced it, mm. but I didn't really know what, you know. But we just worked on it together mm. and it came out the way it did. And it, it was, I mean, I'm really proud of that record, proud of what, well, of, of that. And, mm. um, and so I'd started, without really thinking about it, I started a record
0: label. So that was Mute 002? That was Mute 002. Yeah. Wow. Gosh. I've still got the 12 inch.
3: So, uh,
1: <laughs> <clears throat> so where did Depeche Mode fit into this equation?
3: They, well, um, I saw Depeche Mode around 19, the, towards the end of 1980 supporting Fad Gadget at a place called The Bridge House in Canning Town. Okay. It's a small music pub.
1: Right.
3: More, you know, more kind of, at the time it was a big mod club. Oh. Um, but the, the guy who owned the pub and promoted it, a guy called Terry Murphy, who's a real East End character, he really wanted to support East End artists. Or artists who, you know, and, fa- and Frank, he Frank was his parents were big East End. You know, they worked in the markets and stuff like that. Mm. Kind of big East End traditional family, right? And and Depeche Mode were sort of from the East the East End spill, just, just, spill up, the of, just, then, just right? up the road yeah. in Basel just up the road in Basel So he 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 you know he booked Frank, yep, and he got these these kids to, to support and. I didn't think much about it. I saw, you know, I didn't. I saw them lurking around, and I thought normally, I, you know, I might have gone off to get a bite to eat with a, with Frank and the, the band, but I thought i will watch the support band. I don't know. I just felt, I felt like it. Yep. And there was these three, three kids, mm-hmm. four kids, sorry, three, four kids, um, and they were kids, like seventeen-year-old kids, in really dodgy, neuromantic kind of costumes, mm. uh, with three cheap, sort of, not you know, simple synths. Yep. T- you kind of balanced on beer crates yep. and a drum machine and the yep. singer who looked about 12 had a kind of a, an underlight kind of to make him look goth- gothy yep and they started and I thought fuck out this is good excuse me that was unbelievable it's like an incredible song really well arranged very you know very simple and it was like almost too too good mm. And then I thought, well, maybe that's just the photo. They just do one good song, yeah. and the rest of it's good. They just got better the whole way through, you know. And that was, they pretty much played the first album, Speak and Spell, with some a few other bits of wow, pieces. Wow, so
0: you listening it. to Just Can't Get Enough and to New Life and. To, 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 yeah, not to Just Can't Get Enough. That came a little. Oh, so yes, bit. of course. Well, exactly.
3: but it was on the Speak and Spell, but yeah, definitely New Life, yeah. Dreaming of Me, yeah. a photographic, all those. Wow. All those early on. The really early versions, and they sounded amazing. I thought, there's something going on here. I don't know what it is, but it's didn't quite understand how it all worked you know mm. and so I said to them uh, so I don't quite believe what I was seeing in a way so, yeah. I, was, so I said oh, I went back backstage I went to the little room at the back and said oh, I just, just say I really love that it's really great are you playing again soon so yeah we're playing again the following week so I thought i would come back again
2: mm.
3: just to make sure I was, wasn't yeah. crazy yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I brought a couple of I brought, there's a guy on mute who's still on mute called Boyd Rice. that goes under the name of Non. Oh, uh, yeah, Non, he's, yeah. He's a no, kind of a noise artist, but he's totally into pop music as well. And he came along with me, and uh, he said, Guy, oh, man, you've got to sign this. This is great. Anyway, I knew that anyway. Yes. And I went back. I said, I'd love to do a single. Why don't you do a single? He said, they, said, they were kind of being a bit cool. Mm-hmm. And
0: they said, yeah, okay, let's do a single and see how it goes. I mean, it was really like that. And weren't they at the time being courted by... Uh, the Majors then and offered um, very shortly scene.
3: very shortly afterwards yes it kind of was in a very short period of time because they never really played in London this mm. is about they played one gig upstairs at Ronnie's or something like that and they never really played they played around Basildon and sort of so the Canning Fogel? Town Yeah, Canning Town was about as London as it got for them mm. but very soon after that I mean I don't know uh it went crazy there was a what was name? The um, sound show is Betty Boo. Yeah, and she, she, she caught, she latched onto it and just in kind of, a big exactly. article, and then they, it just happened really fast, and then they started playing gigs in London and going down the Moonlight Club and places like that. But just had
1: you had you got your deal done for a single by this point?
3: Yeah, there was no deal.
1: Just a handshake. Yeah, we'll just put a, a single out. Yeah, that,
3: yeah, yeah, fifty-fifty, like okay. I'd done with, I, because we'd released a few, quite a lot. Well, we'd released about, well, they, they were. Mute Thirteen. Dreaming okay. of Me was Mute Thirteen. So we released a few singles by then. We yeah. started working with look some other artists, right? Like DAF, for instance. And Yes. And, uh, oh, yes. and Non and people like I that. I remember
1: hearing that record on um, on John Peel, Kebab Trauma.
3: Yes. Enough, yes, you know, yes yeah, yeah. 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 So we so we had a sort of little structure. I had one person that that we put out three three albums, which was you know, I had somebody working for me at that point. And uh, so I said, yeah, let's just put a single out and see how it goes. So well, this it? is, th-
0: I mean, this is, I, I described you as a, as a sonic envelope pusher, but you, you're also a music business envelope pusher and test pilot because that, you, you say 50-50 deal um, mm-hmm. in a sort of almost arbitrary way. But at that, that time, um, that was incredibly rare. I think only you and Rough Trade probably were, were doing that because mm-hmm. the whole business business... Model was major label, huge advance, yeah. um, and then band or artist beholden to that company for yeah. sometimes in a very exploitative way. And then you mm-hmm. guys came, kind of dynamited the dam with this whole sort of this totally new business model, which empowered artists so much. Yeah, I mean that was the idea of it. It was it meant if it's a profit share, that means that they have
3: to somehow be more involved in the process. Mm. And some artists that works really well for, mm. and some it doesn't work so well for. Mm. We still do some, some profit share deals like that, but it doesn't work for everybody. Because yep. the people some artists just say no, just give me a royalty, get on with it. I don't want to know about the mar- marketing costs and all that stuff. Yeah. But for then it was perfect, and they didn't have a lawyer, they didn't have a manager.
1: Did you? Have, did you not have a contract? Like no, no paper. No so paper. So you put this record out, but just that's it. Handshake. Yeah. No email, of course, in those days. No
3: email. No nothing in writing. No managers. No lawyers. Just direct.
0: Gosh they got paid hard to imagine not, not even that sort of that what was that factory record sort of written in blood on oh, a no, napkin no no, no. <laughs> no no nothing
1: written at all no nothing
0: written <laughs> at all not even in blood yeah okay. exactly um, so well, obviously you saw something great in them and mm-hmm. they must have by the same token seen something great in you well they they were already fans of the label so they knew you know they were they were you know they
3: they would, there's a famous club, well at the time called Crocs in Rayleigh. Oh yeah, I mm, yeah. played that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they, uh, and you know, they, they, all the, all the DJs there would play all that kind of new electronic music, Human League, you know. Yeah. And they were fans of all that kind of music. Obviously, it influenced them a lot. Yeah. And uh, we, and then we just got on. I don't know. We, they
1: wanted to work with you. And yeah. Wanted yeah. to they be on said, mute. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And we just we just uh, we just got on and as time went on it just developed. You
1: know. Fantastic. Let's, well, yeah, let's see let's... the record, right? Trailblazers, Daniel Miller. I like
0: Okay, since I've listened to Depeche Mode with uh, with Vince's hand on the tiller. Yeah. Um, so, w- well, I, I mentioned that, um, you know, you saw something in them and they saw something in you. Mm-hmm. So you, you signed what were then just four kids from Basel, four children spotted. Or didn't sign. Or, well, yeah, actually, actually, you yeah, didn't sign them. Yeah. And um, you, so you did it on a spit and a handshake. Yeah. And I, I mean, looking back on it, they could have so easily just... Screwed you over, or gone somewhere else, or and, and and later on in their career. I mean, not just then when they were being caught. And I, I I read, I remember reading that they got offered a staggering amount of money and a, and a clothing allowance by some record company, and they turned all that down for their fifty fifty deal with no advance with you. Yeah, I mean that that says a lot about you, surely. And says a lot about them. Yeah, about and both then, of you. Yeah. The, 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 there's a lot of mm. honour there. Yeah, and I think because things
3: happened quickly for them they started to make some money quite quickly
0: and of course you know, the amount of money that they would, would make successfully on a 50-50 deal because so, they, yeah. they would have been on 10-12% or something on, yeah. with a major deal yeah if they were lucky yeah, yeah.
3: and also from, from gigs you know their costs you know so they quite quickly st- um, they were still at work Fletcher and Martin Andy Fletcher and Martin Gore, were working in the city That's like junior office boy type things uh, Dave was at college and Vince was on the dole. But Vince was actually the, the leader of the group. He wrote mm. the songs, apart from a couple of instrumentals that Martin wrote. Mm. He wrote the songs. He, he was the hustler. He was, yep. one, he was a really ambitious one. Yep. The others were going, oh, it's quite nice to be in a band. Let's see how it goes. Still got our jobs. He, was, he didn't have a job. And he was, the, he was the one. You know, And he put those songs together, really. And, mm. um, but then, of course, he left the group. Oh. Yeah, well, from, from your point of view, what happened there? i could feel i mean this all happens very quickly so so i met them in 1980 the first album came out in september i think 81 he announced his departure to us at that time but carried on his commitments to the beginning of the next the following year um i could just feel i didn't know them very well as people at the beginning they just seemed like four mates really but i realized they weren't really four mates they were factions, you know even at that point, right, um, not enemies, but they no. weren't. they weren't like they weren't like a close band, you know
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: Fletch and Martin grew up together, yep, uh, Dave was kind of auditioned by them, mm. uh, he was the new one, mm. and Vince they all grew up in the same town, and they all knew the same people, but Vince, I could feel him gradually. Drifting away from them, you know. You know, when I used because, basically, I, I I was with them the whole time. I was worked with them in the studio. I yeah. drove the van. I did the sound live, you know. So I was I was with them a lot. I could just see Vince kind of withdrawing from the process a bit, mm. and I think he never explained it until a long time later. I think he suddenly figured out that he could just he didn't need a band to do what he was doing. He could do it on his own with a singer, mm. and I. And I think he just didn't, and also he didn't, even though he was very ambitious and very, he was the kind of leader, I think the sort of the kind of, the the fame part of it, he didn't like very much. Right. Um, It's a lot of, of, a mixture of lots of different things, I think. Don't forget that he was 20, you know, he was 19 at the time, you know, so young kid, you know.
0: But very thoughtful. Mm. Very thoughtful, very, very thoughtful and also probably quite shy he wanted to put a singer between himself and the people yeah he was definitely definitely yeah
3: he was definitely shy but not shy in coming forward about what he was doing but in general shy as a person yeah but what a what a precocious talent yeah i know incredible really and so yeah so he left in
0: yeah he left
1: and then the 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 remaining guys said
0: we're going to carry on. Yep. Well, yeah. Well, here's the interesting thing: it mm. wasn't like when Paul Weller left The Jam; it was just like there was a, n- a nuclear explosion. Yeah, and that and The Jam were never going to carry on. No. But him leaving Depeche Mode, and you think, well, chief songwriter leaving band,
1: mm.
0: they their whole future can be summed up in one rude word. Mm. But no, it just they mm. like Dave and uh, was it Dave and Fletch who, who stepped up to the plate? Well, no, they they
3: they. No, I mean. They all well. David Fletcher said to me, "Don't worry, Martin, Martin writes songs." Of course, Martin. Yeah, and uh, and he'd written the two instrumentals, which were very good, and he made quite a good musical contribution to the album, Speak and Spell, and you know, sort of extra kind of musical riffs and things like that. But he hadn't written any lyric, you know. Mm.
1: But so, he, so you did worry. Well, I,
3: I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't worried because, first of all, from a. First of all, I was in a much better position than I could have, would, was ever going to be. Right, I would have been without it. So, from a personal point of view or a label point of view, I didn't worry because it was like we've already, done well. We've done it was out. already it was already like so much more success, commercially successful than I could have ever imagined. Yeah, if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. You know.
1: Okay.
3: The band, you know, were, okay, they left their jobs by then. and They mm. really wanted to, and they were successful, and they wanted to make it. They wanted to carry on, and that's fine. Mm. And Martin wrote wrote songs. He'd been writing songs for years, you know, with different bands before, even mm. though he was only 19 at the time. Mm. And so, it's okay, so he wrote some songs. Let's give it a go. <laughs> but it was a very different work, a very different process at that point because he'd written songs, but he he didn't have a vision exactly, really, at that moment, how they should be presented or played or where Vince had everything really mapped out in his head every last beat, every last mm. part, every last sound. For Martin, it was. We, as you say, it was Cas- you know the demos were Casio and foot and foot tap. Yes. So we like, love Casio and <laughs> play that and tap his foot, and then we had to make it up from there. You know, as yeah. a, as a group of people, and that, it, it, obviously, you know, in some ways, that was a lot more interesting for people because with Vince, it was this is the way it's going to be. Yes. With them, it's like how are we going to do this? More like a, a proper band. Like a band, ah. anyway. Yeah, like a mm. band, and um, so we started the first single we put out. Which was Martin written by Martin was See You, which was actually ended up being the biggest Depeche single at that point.
1: Uh-huh. So uh huh. So that proved that actually that gave everybody a lot
3: of confidence. Yes, that we could move very, forward.
1: Very important thing. If yeah. that had flopped out, maybe some yeah. internal yeah. stresses and
3: who oh. knows. But but it was a really strong song, and we managed to get it to sound good and everything and. Yeah, and it became a, yeah, it was number two, I think. I then
1: How involved were you in the, the shaping of the of those those records at that point? You were in the studio with the guys going?
3: Yeah, I was I mean I was kind of co producing. Right. Yeah, and I and I kind of knew a bit more about the technical side of things, so I was kinda of helping them get what they want, um helping them get sounds, helping them mm. But they soon got the hang of it, you know. And just push keeping them going really, you yep. know just like you know just sort of saying that's good that's not good let's let's move on you know okay that kind of thing and um
1: yeah, yeah great hmm. and so were you were you getting increasingly busy with other artists at this point as well signing other
3: well what no I, I, that kind of signing stopped at that point right a bit
0: i mean there was like there was a, we were a small company there's about three or four of us but you had one land right in your lap which was erasure well, Yazoo. It was Yazoo, of course. Yeah. Yes, Yazoo first, and then... Anyway, yeah, 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 yeah. So what happened was, yeah, Vince Clark left Depeche Mode.
3: Yeah. And he did a demo with this girl called Alison Moyer. Yes. Another local girl from Billericay, so not exactly Basildon. But no, close, but pretty close but enough. Close, to close the, enough for home yeah. to keep it real. Yeah, yeah. And that was Only You. Yeah. Which was an amazing song. Yes. I and, think. you know, the incredible voice, all those things that it was, you know. I mean that could have been on my list. There's so many tr- tracks uh, that could yeah, have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a huge success. And that then that. So, all bef- so by ni- beginning of 1982, yeah. when that came out, yeah. I had two big
1: projects. Projects and, on, yeah.
3: yeah, really big. I mean, you know, Yazoo took off in a bigger way than Depeche did. They, for a while, they were bigger. It was bigger than Depeche. Right.
0: Because at this point, Depeche Mode hadn't cracked America, so you y- yeah. weren't the biggest band in the world <laughs> at that point. No, they
3: weren't. Definitely weren't the biggest band in the world. But and and uh, and Yazoo was had, had somehow more mainstream sound, should we say? Yeah, With, they're more of a top of the pops band, yeah, weren't they? Yeah, but, I mean, Depeche were on top of the pops all the time. Yeah. They were all on top yeah. of the pops all the time. You know, yeah. they were incredible top of the popses at those days. You know, you had Soft Cell, Human League, yeah. Depeche yeah. Mode. You know, yeah. they were you know really good but um, and so in answer to answer your question I was you know those two projects were more than I could handle right plus I was in the studio with Depeche. yeah for long long periods of time and as they carried on those periods of time you know the, the the studio time became longer and longer and more extended that's And, what's really and you
1: had you had some big club records so I'm thinking of situation for example by Yazoo which was yeah. must have been one of the biggest hippest club records in the world at that time right you Yeah,
3: Francois Kays remix.
1: Yeah, you must have I presume you were at Danceateria or wherever and mm-hmm. experience. Did you go to many of those sort of yeah, legendary I, mm-hmm. early 80s New York clubs?
3: I did. I, well Yazoo yeah, played at uh, Paradise Garage. Okay. Which was incredible. Wow. Yeah, yeah. First time I'd seen a club without alcohol. Yes. You no, know, I went to the Mud Club and Don Satiri and Mars yeah. and all those places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Because they were playing our records well, like you crazy. Well, you
1: must have had some of the biggest records there mm. in New York at that time, I'm sure you did. Yeah, and the
3: Just Can't Get Enough 12-inch was really big. Yeah. And, you know, Shout 12-inch and, you know, and DAF and stuff. So, yeah, those they were that kind of... D-O-R, they called it, dance-orientated rock.
1: Yeah. Must um, have been an incredibly exciting period for you, having this massive commercial success in the UK, yeah. this really hip thing going on in America. Yeah. Was, and were, your, were the acts travelling well? Were, were these acts having success in Germany, France, yeah. Australia, all of these places at well, this point?
3: Depeche instantly had success in Europe. I mean, I remember the first little tour we did of Europe of clubs. Uh, we went to Germ. We went to Hamburg, Paris, Brussels, Amsterdam. Yep. Played the kind of place that everybody would play in that mm. sort of level, smallish places. Yeah. And people went nuts. Yeah. And I couldn't quite believe it. You know, I really couldn't believe it. And, yeah. Uh,
1: Again, we have to keep reminding ourselves pre-internet. So people would have been buying this stuff, you know, maybe import the import store yeah. in...
3: Yeah, or the press, you know, a little bit of press. Me- yeah, yeah,
1: whatever. Very different mm. routes to... And very... Mm. M- harder. Just mm. harder to, to break globally mm. in that pre-internet era. It yeah. did take longer, didn't it? So,
3: And the thing about Depeche that I noticed when I f- first saw them, the very first time I saw them, because yeah. they had some of their friends at that gig, and was that they were people, during the songs, people weren't watching them. They were dancing. mm so they would. It was they were you know live like a club band, like a. Mm. Show it wasn't band.
1: just standard. No, they stare. Were, no.
3: They were actually dancing like they would have done in a club. Yeah. And then they'd stop and clap. Yeah. And then the next song would come, and they would dance with each other. They weren't watching the. Band, weren't interested in what the band were doing. Okay. And that, that was happening in Europe, but not in. No, no, UK. that happened in, in London. But that was in London, and then I remember the, going to the first gig. They were well, second gig they did in Europe, which was the, the Markthalle in Hamburg, which is kind of seated, mm. semi-seated. I thought, I wonder what's going to happen because. People are going to sit down. because because the, the band, you know, this is what how the the, U, the, the London gigs had all the UK gigs have gone, and you know, they just all stood up on the seats and dancing, and, and it
1: was great. It was great, yeah. So. Okay, so then so, so we've got Depeche and um, Yazoo kind of g- growing in parallel. What talk? Keep us mm. moving through keep, the timeline. So
3: yeah, so Yazoo split up after two albums. Yeah, Vince and Alison didn't really get on very well. And, in fact, the second album, uh, You and Me Both, I don't think they were ever in the studio together at any point. Ah, right. It's one of those. It's one of those. Well, Had it know.
1: started beautifully and gone down? Well, hill, it, started,
3: or, uh, it started... I wouldn't say it started... It started by accident.
1: Right, another accident. You
3: know, just like, well, Let's, he knew, he'd knew he seen a play with an R&B band. I mean, R&B, you know, yeah. Dr. Feelgood R- type R&B. Right. Uh Locally, somewhere, mm. and she thought, "Oh, she's got give a nice it a go. we'll give one it a of goes. those. Yeah, see what it sounds like." You know, but
1: they maybe didn't. They weren't like you know. It wasn't that they were tight. No, a tight unit. I visual. think. That, I think you know. The,
3: I think the, the, at the beginning, the excitement of the whole thing kept kind of was kept them sort of tight, and, and then they kind of gradually drifting. disagreements, musical differences, oh, yeah. ego differences, whatever oh, you want to call it. Yeah. yeah so yeah. that that ended, and then Vince. So Vince had two successful groups. Globally successful groups in two years, pretty much.
1: Amazing, and but neither of them have. have but they both <laughs> no, yeah. split up.
3: Yeah, he left. Yeah, both. Oh, he, he And oh. then uh, he had not Then he did a single with Fergal Sharkey. Oh. Uh, never, never.
1: I don't remember that.
3: No. Oh, that was a big hit. Was it? Yeah, okay. Fergal, that one. Yeah, that was great. That's a really great track. Right, and. Then he decided, and then he, then he kind of was lost a little bit. Didn't know what he wanted to do. He was messing around the studio a lot. But didn't quite finish stuff, and and then he said, oh, "I want to form. I want to. I wanted a new band." Okay. Actually, he was one of the first people. He what he wanted to do was do a project with guest singers, mm. which hadn't really happened up to that point. That was no. kind of a. But none of the people that he wanted to work it didn't work out anyway. Okay. But Fergal Sharky was the first of those, and that worked out. And it was a single, but after anyway. So he's. So he said, "I'm going to form a band. I'm going to start auditioning singers." So he did that, and he came and uh, with Flood, the uh, producer, yes, who we'd started to work with, and so he auditioned and um, chose Andy Bell. He found this kid, Andy Bell, very young kid from Peterborough, and they made an album, and it was a flop, a real flop. So it was ah. Vince's first
1: taste of, taste of the other side. Yeah,
3: which, in one sense, he actually. I think and one half of him enjoyed that and they worked hard they went on the road tra- back of a transit van you know transit van did the you know he went from playing really big shows with Yazoo around the world to playing college you know like universities in the back of a van
1: yeah.
3: um, mm. enjoyed it enjoyed that side of it very much you know
1: you as the label must have been disappointed well
3: we would as a label and a band on the other side you know we were both really frustrated by the fact that nothing was happening with these tracks and we didn't know um we, m- nobody could figure it out you know we worked with the, all the pluggers and all the other people we were working with nobody could figure it out you know i mean the the, t- the time had changed it was a d- but there's also a bad time for depression in this country right but that didn't matter that much because they're already well established around the world yeah but you know it was you know they, it's hard to to program Yazoo, sorry, Erasure with Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if, as if you're a radio programmer, you probably know this bit, a lot better than I do. Yeah. And it was all that big kind of 80s, everybody talks about the 80s, the 80s sound, but there are lots of different 80s sounds, obviously. Mm. Yeah. There was the kind of big, <laughs> kind of explosive, you know, rock, big stadium rock sound. And they just didn't fit into it, you know. So, and, and so yeah. it got to the point where I almost said, look, if we can't, you know, we put out three or four singles from the first album nothing happened with any of them no airplay to speak of no sales mm. they're building a live fan base they mm. were playing live but it was you know
2: mm.
3: and so i said look vince i don't i i'm at a loss i don't know what to do i think you made a great record it's not getting out there you know maybe we should have another go and if it doesn't work we should you should you know if you if, you, if you're not happy we should you know part company you know i mean on a very friendly basis we're talking but yeah i was like tearing my hair out i had hair at that point and I tore it out yes and um, and then I remember we had a studio we've always had a studio at Mute and um, Flood who produced the first album was working with Vince on a new track on just one track and he phoned me up I said I think we got I think we got something so I went I went to the studio and listened to Sometimes and yeah, I, th- I, th- I, th- I felt it. I definitely felt this was there was something about that. I knew I, th- I really had a good feeling about it. And I remember we, we finished it off and we, and we put it out. And they were on tour at the time. And I just remember it started to get airplay. It just touched the seventy-five, which was big at that time, was quite important. The seventy-five. Yep. And it just went. It was just exploded from there. And I remember the gigs getting more and more mental and touring with the Mean Fiddler, they'd been booked in, because they booked the tour before there was a hit, so they booked in the Mean Fiddler in Halsden, which is, a, you know, holds about 400 people. Yeah. I think we ended up doing four or five of them, and the queues around the block, people going nuts, but within, you know, months they were playing the NEC and all that kind of stuff. So, the, the, you know, sometimes was a track that really, was a really important
2: one. Trailblazers, Daniel Miller. Ooh.
0: So sometimes the, uh, the the one that you managed to crack erasure with yeah. and to um, cast away all of that frustration. And, of course, while you were tearing your hair out, trying, failing, and then succeeding brilliantly with erasure, Depeche Mode, meanwhile, I guess the key point was, well, you can tell me, probably going into studio with Francois Kevorkian and the and making Personal Jesus. Wasn't that what... S- propelled them to sort of u2 status in america i think no well that came a
3: bit later i th- i mean i think what happened was that they went in it was the tour before the violator album that really took them into into the into the american consciousness yes it was tours wasn't it rather yeah. than records yeah because they were still there was, the airplay was still very limited in america to those kind of alternative stations they never crossed over onto the pop side you know but they but they the momentum had built up especially on the west coast and well the two coasts you know but the LA they were all over the radio in LA and they had tickets on sale to um, to play at the Rose they they took a big leap of faith and they decided to play the Rose Bowl stadium which is a 70 80,000 seater stadium Christ they'd already got to points where they're playing like 15,000 I mean obviously we're, we're moving on in time now this sort of late 80s they'd gone from being really a club band When people used to say "In America, you know you don't have a guitarist you don't have a drummer you'll never get out of the clubs small clubs and they said so we just carried on doing that and then but LA because K-Rock in particular the radio the alternative radio station was playing Depeche Mode mm. like non-stop
1: yeah
3: I remember they booked um, to play in a, I can't remember the name of the place now but like a 1500 seater which would be you know yep that sold out in like an hour they went to a 4000 that sold out in an hour then they went up to 15000 to Irvine Meadows in Orange County which is like a shed they call them in America which is kind of open air and then from that from that point they just went it went in, in in those parts of the states there there was a riot i mean a proper riot when the, when the they were doing an in-store in the warehouse in L.A. Were
1: you there for
3: the riots? I sadly wasn't there for the riot. Shame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would but, there was, but it was helicopters and police cars and a proper full-on riot. Wow,
1: okay.
3: Um, and that became kind of news here as well as there. Yeah. So the perception was Depeche Mode are massive in America. Actually, it wasn't strictly true. They were massive in L.A.
1: Yes, a bit of a self-fulfilling yeah, thing though, right? Yeah. If, if enough people mm. say you're massive, you become massive, don't
3: you? And they? then they did the gig that... At the Rose Bowl, which, yes. was a, which became a film yes. made by D.A. Pennybaker, right. legendary, who did Monterey Pop and all uh-huh, that. He uh-huh. did a documentary music film. Yeah. And there was a scene in the film at uh, the uh, Rose Bowl Stadium during the song uh, Never Let Me Down, where 80,000 people are kind of waving their arms yeah. in the air. And it was like an amazing shot, amazing, amazingly well shot. Mm. And that we managed to get that on some TV show here. And then that was, okay, they're massive in America. Yeah. And uh, they were never—they weren't that massive in America. They were massive in LA. They were big in New York, Chicago, yeah, you know, Chicago, San Francisco. But the whole bit in the middle, nobody even heard of them. And so we went back in the studio after that tour to yeah. make the next record, which was ended up being Violator. Worked with Flood for the fir- they worked with Flood for the first time. Yeah. And we—we'd we'd already decided that we wanted—we'd like Francois to mix the album. Yeah. Francois K. Yep because of yeah you know, lots of reasons but but craft work that electric cafe sound is, is so great and his thing anyway and we did per, the first track we did was personal jesus yeah and um, we thought that would be we wanted to do that as a teaser track it was going to come out i think the album was due to come out in march of 90 or whatever and we we wanted, we thought we'd put out something in between to keep the momentum going in america yeah, But we thought Personal Jesus was going to be a kind of an underground record. We didn't think it was going to cross over. Mm. Partly, partly because it had
0: the word Jesus in it. Well, I was going to say, you didn't think that a record with the word Jesus in it wasn't going to cross... It was filling the gaps to middle to middle America <laughs> that you were so, missing out off your, uh, <laughs> off your sales.
3: And, um, of course, it's always great when you don't expect something and it happens. That became, I think, at the time, the biggest selling 12-inch that Warners had ever put out. Right. right. And then we came back when we finished the album we came back with enjoy the silence yeah which was even bigger yes and then the album yeah was was huge
0: so you've got this so now you've got arguably the biggest band in the world and things probably can't get much better for you financially or you're thinking you know and you're and you're still an independent yeah. w- label i mean, you yeah. obviously you had big, these big distribution mm. w- with deals with, with with people i'm guessing that you you know you're thinking oh i can't get any better than this And then suddenly, I guess Moby happens, and then and then you've got the most synced (laughs) record in the whole world. Not just the. But what
3: happened between was not so between Violator and Play was probably the towards the end of that was was probably the the least good part of Mutes in terms. It was most for me personally most frustrating part Mm. because for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, it was the pressure on Depeche. Not from me or anybody else, but the inter- to follow that up was very, very high. And you know, it's well documented the kind of problem, personal problems the band had, mm. and how getting through all that. And they made Songs of Faith and Devotion, which is a great album yeah. that only sold, you know, five million copies. Um, but everybody was happy with that. But the band were in, but not in a good way at that point. You know, they start. You know, they were their their habits had become really dangerous. I think and. So that was really d- quite a dark period on that side of things. Was I mean,
1: it was it dark in terms of your? Did your relationship with them start to really suffer because suddenly there were
3: bust-ups and the relationship? No, the relationship is with the band is, in general was still very was still very good. I think the relationship within the band was not was not good. Right. Um,
1: you did well then to still maintain a because sometimes the label become the brunt of.
3: Yeah, no, that wasn't ever the case. But, um, you know, and the manager, they by that time they had a manager who did a, you know, was very helpful in keeping the whole thing going.
1: Yeah.
3: And then, you know, and the erasure started to go down a bit. Yep. Depeche weren't really making records for quite a long time. Nick Cave was doing very well. Mm. Of course, because you
0: had Nick Cave on, yeah. you had the seas yeah, on the label. 30 years for 30 and, years, yeah. And, and Warren Ellis and the whole,
3: yeah.
2: yeah.
3: Mm. Um, that was doing really well, but not at that kind of level. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of projects. We had a lot of sort of... We had a great time at that. I mean, there were some really good things we were doing. We, we started Rhythm King.
1: Yeah, of with course. Martin Heath. And, with those smashes. Yeah, s Express. Express, Bomb, Bomb the, ba- the Bass. Betty Boo, yeah. Yeah,
3: and, yeah. Uh, um, and Blast First, who had Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr. I mean, it was amazing. That was late 80s. Hmm. Yeah. But, but, what, just I the had the no the idea feels. you were involved with that. That's amazing. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. when I left, because basically I was in the studio with Depeche Mode for six years. And I was getting frustrated. We all get, It was the time had come for me to get out of the studio mm. and get on with running a record company. Mm. And I hadn't signed any for ages. And I and I just by chance met these guys. Well, I met Martin Heath and James Horrocks, who yeah. started Rhythm King, and I met Paul Smith, who started Blast First. Yeah. I said, this. Um, I. I don't. I'm not in that world. I'm not in the house music world. I'm not in the guitar Lower East Side. It wasn't called grunge in those days. World. But these guys really know what they're doing, and I love the music. So yeah, let's go. You know, so we did. So yeah, we, I mean, it was 80, 87, 88, 89 We had Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., Butthole Surfers, S Express, all that lot. You know, wow. on the base, which was
0: you know, mental time, yeah. a bit fun. You know, up to a point. And yeah. you say it was a frustrating time. There's a there's a lot of success right there with that. With that. Yeah, list. that was a
3: bit earlier. That I'm sorry, I, I rewound a bit. No, that, okay. was, that yeah. was great. That was pre-violator. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But then, yeah, so the '90s and then the, the Britpop thing happened, mm. which was very counterintuitive for what we were doing. You know, the kind of music. The Brit, we were always trying to push the envelope, and I felt that Britpop was pushing the envelope that way. Yeah. And mm. the you, I mean, you remember the Britpop era. You couldn't move in the media without Brit, you know, Britpop. Yeah. Of yeah. course, there was on the underground side. There was good techno scene. Yes. But it wasn't, you know, commercially big. But it was. Mm. I mean, there was a the commercial end of it. Mm. But Britpop were really. And none of—I didn't want to work with Britpop bands. None of the bands that I worked with—they were kind of—they—they—they were kind of, they, 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 they were kind of over, overlooked, really, in, 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 the, in the media sense, press and radio. Mm.
0: Was it was Berlin uh, an outlet for you to get away from from Britpop then? Because I know that you've got <laughs> offices there, I know that you've got a yeah. place there, you've got a great interest, obviously, with, yeah. with you know. Well, but my music.
3: my yeah I. I I kind of, my Berlin relationship started in the early 80s. First of all, because the, par- uh, the birthday party lived there and I worked with the birthday party. They were mm. on 4AD and then they came to mute and mm. then they they became Nick Cave of the Bad Seeds. But they were mm. living there. We worked in Hansa. Mm-hmm. I loved that place so much. Then we did Three Depressions. That's
1: just, you you s- s- uh, spin past Hansa about that. It's that amazing, <laughs> yeah, it's fancy, yeah, legendary <laughs> yeah. recording studio where so much amazing stuff happened, Yeah, well, right? that's
3: where Bowie did Low and Heroes. Yeah. Uh, you know you 2 did stuff there a lot yeah. of stuff we did th- we did three albums there yeah Depe- I mean we
0: being Depeche
3: yes
1: yeah, plus sure.
0: other artists like Einstutz and Neubauten
1: yeah
3: I was
0: going to say you mu- you must have um, come across Bricks Bargelt and all of those yeah like, well they very... were on mute
3: for a quite long time yeah and Diamanda Gallas who's American but she was she was living there so yeah, yeah. that's a whole other thing but yeah, yeah. and then when the wall came so we were quite big involved in that whole scene and then the wall came down and the whole techno thing exploded with clubs like Trezor and Yes And You know I was You know I loved Trezor And those guys And that's around the time Rhythm King ended Yes And we started Nova Mute Which is yes. a, more of a tech, Straight ahead techno label Yes And we were distributing We were putting out The Trezor records Through Nova Mute Yeah As well as working With people like Speedy J, Yeah Plastic Man Yeah And some of the great Electronic music innovators of that era, you know, mm. si beg who's a lovely si man. Beg, you, you still yeah. got his publishing. I know yeah, yeah. I, I, si beg <laughs> and yeah, a lot. Of, you know, we worked with some really, you know, kind of a harder guy. You know, Adam Bayer, people like that, kind of mm-hmm. more hard stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was a good time. The, trip, the whole Berlin Trésor thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So, and uh, Moby, should we? Do you want to tell us how you first came yeah. across Moby?
3: Yeah, well, Moby, f- actually. Rhythm King licensed Go from Instinct Records in New York It was a one-off license and that was a huge, that became a big hit. Yeah. Um, Then Moby, I don't know what exactly happened between them but it didn't work out.
1: Yeah.
3: And um, we got in touch with Moby. The the guys who were running Nova Mute said, oh, you've got to sign Moby. We we just saw Mm. him play live. You'll love him. Blah, Mm. blah, blah. I went, because I didn't really know Moby; it was just a license, the one-off thing. I didn't, yes. I hadn't met him. I don't think even at that point.
1: Yeah, we, we put out. I signed um, uh, a Moby record under the name UHF. Do you remember that record? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we did that for XL. Um, okay. So that was before he was Moby, funnily yeah. enough. But yeah. again, yeah. it was it was kind of a tracky yeah thing. Yeah. Although his manager, I th- Would his manager Eric Hall have been? I think he was in the equation. Even that, in those days, even yeah, I think he might have been. He definitely
3: was club. at the beginning of yeah. our relationship. Yeah, 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 he still
1: yeah. is, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay,
3: so you know, so yeah, so we signed Moby. Yeah, actually, we did actually sign Moby. Yes, you actually had some paperwork on We've been
1: going for twenty years. Let's. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs>
3: and um, he did a fir- his first record, which was uh, his first album, "Everything Is Wrong," which yeah. which did really well. It was yeah. kind of in kind of a more popular dance version of Go you know he was in still very much an electronic music world yep Um, and he did really well and he toured on it and everything was going extremely well Mm. and then he decided to make a punk rock record just at the time when in America the Chemical Brothers Prodigy yes uh, Fat Boy Slim were all or his contemporaries
1: Electronica was exploding as it was called Electronica
3: as the Wall Street Journal coined that phrase I believe did they? yeah right that's why I try and avoid using it. Mm. Um, and Moby made a punk rock record. Yeah. And he made an OK punk rock record. He
1: didn't make a great punk rock record called did Animal you, Rights. Did you try? Did you say to him at the time, "Look at the business that these guys are doing here. They've all, you know, and you're going, you're going in the other direction."
3: Of course, we had those lot of those talks, discussions, but with Eric as well, of course. Yeah. The manager who was, but in the end. If you believe in the artist, which I believed in I, I, it was it was difficult, but he, we went through it with him, you know, and who knows if he hadn't
1: done that, maybe he wouldn't have done play yes who, who knows who knows, but you thought mm. let's back the artist, yeah,
3: let's back the artist the record did really badly, yes um his he was you know his touring went shoo, like that playing to like two hundred and fifty people at the water rats kind of thing Oof. it was like you know, and then we um he started writing a new record and he was definitely wanted to make a more... Ele- it started out as a sort of more electro-pop record mm. and Eric and I were not sure if it was a bit too... wasn't quite... didn't feel like Moby. Mm-hmm. felt like he was trying too hard or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then... Uh, and then he played me one track, played us one track, which was... Was um, uh, it Why Does My Heart? It wasn't actually Why Does My Heart. It was well, what, F- Find My Baby, I think, which was a... The first thing I heard where he used those kind of bluesy sample things. Yes. And we said maybe that's the, go, that, go that way. Yeah. You know? And he wasn't and then he, then he went that way and he made that album.
1: Yep,
3: And again we had a lot of frustration. We, we thought it was amazing how people were, the kind of feedback I was getting from people who you wouldn't normally get feedback from loving the record made me feel that it could be huge. Mm. But it took a while to break through. We we put out three singles
2: mm-hmm.
3: without really that much we, without that much success ok and then um, was it an advert or something that did it that cracked it it was a combination of things and then we, we, said, we said we should let's let's not overthink this let's just put out our favourite track so we put out Why Does My Heart Feel So Bad and there was a combination of things Pete Tong started to play it
1: yeah
3: um, another track was, was had a big sync Find My Baby had a big sync and all of a sudden it just went Nuts!
0: You yeah. had a perfect storm. Yeah,
3: very. Cause I remember we did. We deliberately did. We did he did a Scarlet show, which was about seven hundred people. And the the idea was to do two Scarla shows. I said no, let's wait. Let's do one. It was just as wise as my heart come out, and let's do the other one. Six weeks later, at the end of the tour.
1: Okay, one during, at the beginning, one at the
3: end. During the during the cycle of the of the track, it was hilarious. The first one I think it was fairly sold, almost sold out, but you know, struggled. The second one, everybody. Everybody. Was on you your know, case. But it wasn't just. It wasn't. Yeah. It was, all, it was like your celebrities wanted to go there. Like Everybody wanted to review it. It was
1: hilarious, really. And this was in a six week space. A six week period, yeah.
2: Trailblazers. Daniel Miller. Why does my heart feel so bad? Why does my
0: Wow, it's interesting hearing that. I remember I remember the, the amount of hate that that got, purely based on how successful it was. I yeah. think all of the all of the cool police said no, no good because it's so successful and all yeah. the you know all the hipsters um, before hipsters really existed <laughs> saying no, 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 no. And I think uh, speaking as someone, the only person I know who got zero in a mass paper. Um, wasn't uh, maybe one of the only artists to ever get zero out of ten in an album. Yeah, review. the album
3: even before it was successful, he got a zero out of ten full page review in the Melody Maker. Oh
0: dear, zero out of ten.
3: Yeah. Oh, that's awful. But it's better to get zero out of ten like, than two out of ten, isn't
0: it? Well, uh, yeah, because yes. yeah, because it's yeah because it's, it's you're you're the other end of the you know you are the best at, at being having no
2: marks
1: (laughs) (laughs) but an amazing an amazing success story Mm. so um so yeah so post this Mm. enormous Moby success what Mm. what happened for for Mute then
3: well immediately before the Moby success we were you know in in spite of the success we'd had we were not in very good shape as a company financially okay you know various reasons but um and I was, you know, I, I needed to kind of raise, I wanted to raise some money somehow to keep the thing going for a while. Mm. But then, just as things were getting really bad, it's like the cavalry came over the hill in the shape of Moby and um, ended up, set, that sold about 10, 12 million albums as well in the end. And I, I'd had a difficult time with Mute, uh, with, with biz, on the business side of Mute for like four, three or four years. And I kind of, had had enough of that in a way and yeah. and I'd got a very there's a guy called Emmanuel de, de Bortel. Yeah, I
1: know him,
3: yeah. Who I'm sure you know, mm. who at the to- who I'd known we we grew up together in the business basically. He promoted mm. a fad gadget gig in Lyon in 1980. He then became very successful at Virgin France, who mm. were our licensee. Mm. And then and then he became the head of Continental Europe at EMI. And throughout those years he was trying to buy mute. And I, I said look i'm in a i'm in a good position now you know a year ago we were in a really terrible situation now we're you know tell me what you know tell me what you what you're going to offer you know what what this is what i want i said this if i'm going to you know in terms of creative control autonomy blah 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 and he gave basically he said yes to everything so we we did it i sold it sold it to emi for better or worse and for three years it was great until he parted company with emi and then it didn't never got terrible but it, it the whole point was well, he understood what Mute was about and how it could, we could all work together. And then after that, we were just another label with a couple of successful artists. And, it, and it, So
1: at that point, did you regret the EMI deal? I don't know. I don't, think I,
3: I don't think I regretted it. No? I, I don't think I regretted it. I just didn't think it was very... It wasn't working out. And, you know, so that had to, we had to make it work out. And ultimately, after a few years, it was... EMI was going through its own problems at that point it was yeah, being sold
1: problems yes
3: so you know we were kind of getting sucked into their problems and there came a point where and I got on quite well with EMI people you know it wasn't like we had terrible fights we kind of both said look it's not really you know the things that I wanted to do which they couldn't do the things they wanted me to do I didn't want to do it wasn't working out I so said let's just part company in as, in, a, in as good a way as we can you know so we left EMI they obviously owned the catalogue but we brought a lot of the artists with us. You know, we brought Goldfrap, uh, you know, um, a lot of, you know, mm. Goldfrap, Liars, Erasure. A lot, of, a lot of the artists historically we'd had came into the new company, into the new Mute. Mm. And the first, and then we started signing new artists for the new label. And the first artist we signed was Yeasair, mm-hmm. American band who are, I think are fantastic. And the labels were fully independent and have been for five years. Yeah. Still working, as I say, with people like Goldfrap and Erasure. Mm. Which is great, mm. and lots of nuances too.
1: Tell me, tell me about uh, signing New Order.
3: Yeah, well, that I mean, I'd, New Order hadn't made an album for ten years. The catalog was with another with a major label with Warner Brothers. Um, Nikki Kafalas, who you probably know, yeah,
0: yeah,
3: was the, has been doing our promotion for years, and also doing New Order's promotion for even longer. Factory, you know.
1: Gosh, didn't Nikki even work on like those Rhythm King records? Yeah, yeah, she worked on. Yeah. Right oh, there? yeah,
3: yeah, 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 she did, yeah. Yeah, wow. And she's still doing most all our promotion. Wow. And she t- she said, "Look, New Order. I think New Order might be looking for a deal. Are you interested?" And I said, "Yes, yeah. So She said, "I'll have. will tell them you're interested." And then, I mean, I knew the band a bit. Yep. I mean, from not from you know from going out really, and um, so we had a meeting. It went really well. Immediately, Bernard said, "I'll send you some music."
1: Yeah,
3: and I was—I mean, it was early, very early versions of the tr- of what basically is the album. Yeah, no vocals at that point. But I thought, I mean, you know, you, you always get when you get put in—you don't often get put in a situation like that where you have a great, legendary band, historically unbelievably important band. Yeah, who, but haven't made a record for ten years. You, you're nervous because you want it to be good. Yes, uh, but it might not be. It might be not good. You know it could be them just getting back together to, to whatever um, so obviously I was nervous about that and if it wasn't if it hadn't been if I didn't find it exciting I wouldn't have done it because I think it would have just been a very painful experience for everybody
1: yeah
3: And but I, what I heard I thought it sounded great and so we just we, said, we did it we did it you know and um, they produced they, Tom, Tom Rowland from Chemical mm. Brothers produced two, two and a half tracks they did the rest of themselves
1: mm.
3: in their own studios up in Macclesfield yeah and uh, I, I kind of got involved a bit on the a and r side, but it was mostly not creative really, apart from helping them t- they had a lot of songs and a lot of different versions of each song, yeah, and so we kind of sifted through a lot of that to decide which ones to go forward with and then it was more about just keeping it on track for them you know and getting it mixed great and um, i mean couldn't have been happy with, with with the result you know and I think that the general public have, you know thing you know, it's, gone, it's gone down extremely well
2: Trailblazers, Daniel Miller it's a
0: And just bearing in mind the conversation that we just had, I, I, I've, there's one question I'm dying to ask, which is, who's the one that got away? Because you've, you've, got, you've got a new order on mute. Your legendary band, legendary label. They are nothing but good, in my mind, can come from that. Yeah. Um, Nick here will admit to you, even before a, a couple of drinks, that he passed on, um, on Aphex Twin. Sure. Got a 16-year-old Richard D. James's demo and uh, and passed up on it so who who's the one is there one that got away or even one that you wish that you had signed because you know you've got if you ask mark jones of wall of sound who he wishes he'd signed he'd say it was depeche mode mm. who who do you wish that you signed that you hadn't signed
3: well i think it's, that's a tricky one uh, because you've got to be careful what you wish for sometimes <laughs> um we briefly worked with craft when we were at emi which was amazing yeah, because um, they kind of fell into you know within the EMI restructuring, they fell into our into Mute's lap, which I was absolutely delighted about. It was it was reissued stuff, but nevertheless, it had a Mute logo on it. That's so that you know we we worked with Can, who were one of my other we worked for twenty five years on the Can catalogue. I wished, I mean, in terms of bands, were t- in retrospect, I don't, I'm not, I don't wish I had signed them, but at the time, I really had. You know, there was, um, the yeah, yeah yeahs we really tried to sign yeah.
1: right
3: a couple of others we really tried to sign the klaxons at the time we tried to sign ah yeah but you know the yeah yeahs have gone to really great things the klaxons are sort of you know whatever but I mean the one that I really would have the one that I the one that's very successful that I d- deliberately turned down you know turned down was Nine Inch Nails oh uh, my god really uh, I thought it was too much like too much of the stuff already on mute yeah. In a way, at the time, it was. you know, like, nights are and lie back and stuff like that. Yes, yes. Gosh, I'm stunned. I'm, I'm, I I'm didn't st- have the vision <laughs> to see where it could have gone. Oh,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I just think that, that, that passing on stuff is, is as much part of the process as signing stuff. It's mm. just the two go hand in hand. So when <laughs> somebody goes like, well, how could you pass on? Well, in the same way that I could have signed that. It's mm. just—it's
3: <laughs> like
0: all that, part of the. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, the universe is in balance. You've—you've you've got the to other The other one I yeah.
3: Yeah, other so one one passed it. on, which I was, which I'm is actually even more, which I really regret. More from a—I mean, it's a great record, but more from a financial point of view, is the piano by Michael Nyman.
1: Oh wow! My, yeah, the Gosh.
3: soundtrack to that film, which became—and he really, really wanted us to put it out. But I'd been burnt on a few soundtrack albums <sighs> up to that yeah. point, yeah, and I and I just couldn't deal with it. So that's that's huge. I mean, in sync and stuff like that. Amazing. That's more, and it's a great record. So it's not like purely commercial. Mm, but the wow. one that the one that I the other one that I really wanted, which I didn't get, which is the Noi catalog, right? The German band yeah. mm. Ten years we tried to get that, and the two guys in the everybody the ba- the two guys in the band original members Klaus Dinger and Michael Roter, they wanted to do it. We would have been licensed from Universal they, they wanted to do it everybody wanted to do it but the two guys hated each other so much they wouldn't get in the same room to sign a contract
0: they oh. be,
3: not in the same room they didn't want their names on the, the same piece, piece of paper of
0: oh god that's a lot of hate <laughs> oh. Yeah. oh dear that's a lot of waste of energy what a shame because Mute would be obviously be the yeah. perfect Ten years. perfect place Ten years for, for Noi to yeah. be
2: yeah.
0: well um, we've, we've sadly got to end this fascinating um, look through your life and, mm-hmm. uh, and end it as we end everything with this bizarre question that 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 that, but it's interesting in in that it you know hopefully makes Mm. people come up with something a little bit different which is that if aliens were gonna come down and 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 destroy the planet and you could you could save it just with one piece of culture yeah that being music yeah what would you give to them to save planet earth what would be your tune to save the world
3: well it's really there's no question in my mind that it should be lieback the the uh, Slovenian band and life is life um, the liebacker band I've worked with for a very long time f- aesthetically and in many ways they really embody what I what mute is I think they've never had the crossover success but this last year 2015 was one of the most bizarre interesting events that I've experienced in well probably the most actually in my entire Time in the industry, which was going to North Korea with Lieback. They were the first Western rock band, they wouldn't call themselves a Western rock band, ever to play in North Korea. Wow.
1: Wow. I I read something about it. I didn't Mm -hmm. know that you'd been, that you were part of, that you
3: were there. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. And talking of aliens and outer space and, you know, crazy shit, that was definitely, you know, North Korea is an incredible place. And I'm not not good or bad i'm not making a judgment it's just an incredible place it feels like another another planet
1: yeah
3: and it feels like half the time you're thinking are we really in north korea or are we somewhere that says it's north korea it's it's that kind of double reality that's going on and they 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 were the first band ever to play a public concert in north korea and
1: how was what how was the reaction to this was it sit down polite applause type thing yeah sit down polite
3: applause um but an amazing, an amazing feat to get that organised. we didn't—I wasn't involved with the organisation of it, I have to say—but um, I was there and to witness it. And it's—it's it's very heavily documented. There's going to be a film and stuff. Yes,
1: that must have been but amazing.
3: To have these guys from Slovenia in North Korea playing that kind of that kind of music, and all the—I'm not going to go into all the shenanigans that surrounded the whole thing, but it was an incredible experience. So I really had
0: to kind of had to be live back, and I thought wow. this track would be the. There's there's something very strong politically there about a a, some you know a band that sort of grew up through the Tito regime and then yeah. end, ended up in north korea there's yeah. definitely a, it's a very interesting cultural yeah. thing happening right there well, yeah. what a fascinating yeah. way to end and, yeah. and how brilliant to end and i'm, I'm so glad that you said slovenian because of course i've always thought of them as a yugoslavian you know yeah. when i bought the 12 inch back, back when i was whatever 19 and, it was and it was a yugoslavian band yeah. and of course that 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 um, puts a pin in the map for me in, in, yeah. a, in a much more correct way um daniel thank you so much for uh for, what, what a fascinating fascinating tra- chat and you are a a true trailblazer
2: trailblazers Daniel Miller Life Life is life 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 is life Life is life When we all feel the power originals trailblazers Thanks for
0: your ears. We hope you enjoyed Trailblazers. Uh, we love your feedback, so if you want to get in touch
1: with either of us, you can reach out to me via Twitter at edytm. That's e-double-d-y-t-m. Or you can reach out to myself, Nick Hawks, n-i-c-k-h-a-l-k-e-s on uh, Twitter or Facebook. And remember, we've just given you a taste of the the great music that uh, shaped the journey of our special guest today. Uh, if you want to hear music in full, head over to deezer.com and you. You can find special Trailblazers playlists that Eddie and I put together and some special stuff from our guests. And bear in mind that if you enjoyed this stuff on Trailblazers, you'll definitely enjoy the curated playlists that happen on Deezer. Just download the app for free and search for Trailblazers or head to the dance section. Where you'll find a playlist for just about any
0: genre you can think of in dance.
2: Trailblazers.
0: Thanks so much to the amazing
1: Daniel Miller for joining us. Next time on Trailblazers. Tony Prince
2: Deezer Deezer.
1: Originals